Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer for us to focus on, prayer that we've just sung. Let faith arise. Let faith arise. It's a wonderful prayer, but have a question as we begin our time in God's Word this morning. How does faith rise up in our hearts? How does faith rise up in our hearts? It's certainly not self-produced, is it? Have you ever produced an ounce of faith in your life? No. So how does faith arise in our hearts? Well, the answer is faith is determined by where you are looking, where you are looking. Faith rises, first of all, as we look in the book, right? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith comes by looking in the book. And faith comes by looking to Jesus as we look in the book. The writer of Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author of what? He is the author and the completer of our faith. Faith comes by looking in the book. It comes by looking for Jesus in the book. And faith rises as we look in the book, we look for Jesus, and then we look for how we ourselves interact with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, through his revelation in the book. And so I'm praying that that will happen as we do that right now. Turn in your Bibles to this passage in the book, the Word of God, how priceless and precious it is, right? Let's turn to Luke chapter Five, that's page 860, if you'd like to use the Bible prepared for you, and it is precious, and Dr. Joy's reminded us that, and Dr. Joy, again, God bless you, it's a wonderful, I started to say it's a joy to have you with us, it's a joy to have Joy with us, uh, but thank the Lord for her and uh, her ministry and the partnership we've been able to have these many years, and so wonderful to have you here today. But I want us to look to this passage in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to look in the book, and this morning I want us to look for Jesus in this story, and I want us to look at ourselves, because if we will look closely at what we're reading this morning, we can see our own faces in this story. And so let's read this together, and as we honor God's Word if you are able, if you're able to stand, I want to encourage you to do that if you can. But if not, we understand. But let's stand as we can and read God's word. You follow along. And I'll begin reading in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret is another term for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. 
And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boat to land, they left everything and followed him. Now if you would look over to verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with these sinners? Tax collectors. Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord, and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now I've read these two passages, two accounts from the life of Jesus. They, they seem to be very, very different, but we'll see that they are connected by a statement that's made in both stories. Did you see one statement that connected these two stories? Look, if you would, at verse number 11, and it says, And they that brought their boats to land, then they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. And then in verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is the description of what it means to become a disciple. What it means to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be his disciple and follow him. That's what a disciple does. A disciple follows Jesus. That's what a Christian is. We need to understand that a Christian is a disciple. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple. And a Christian is known by the fact that he or she has been called by Jesus and is following him. Not perfectly. None of us do that. 
But Christians follow Jesus because they're his disciples. A disciple follows Jesus. Notice something else about disciples here. They leave their former life. And they follow Jesus into a new life. They leave their former life for a new life. And that doesn't mean necessarily they have to leave their occupation or leave the location of their home. But there is a leaving of what went before and now there's a following of Jesus. In every believer's life, listen, there is B.C. and A.D. There is a life before Christ and there is a life that's lived In the year of the Lord, under the Lord's dominion. And so a disciple follows Jesus. A disciple leaves the life before and follows Jesus for a new life. And a disciple learns from Jesus. There's a beginning of following Jesus, but it's just a beginning. Because following Jesus is a process of learning from Jesus. You see, that's what the word disciple means. Disciple means a learner. We are learners and we have one teacher. The teacher is Jesus and we learn from him. We are his disciples. And so this life of his amazing grace that we're looking at. A disciple is a learner. We're a learner of Jesus. Jesus is the teacher What's the subject? What we've been learning in our series here is the subject is the grace of God. We are learners. Jesus is the teacher and the subject is the grace of God. Not just the grace that saves us the moment we believe, but it's the grace in which we stand. The grace in which we live. You see, for a Christian, every day, now, and through all eternity is grace, right? And so we are growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. So I want this morning for us to look at this passage, these two stories, and I want to see from these stories the life of Jesus, what is it that we learn about grace? He's the teacher, we're the learners, the subject is grace. What do we learn about grace from these two stories? Well, let me share these with you. First of all, I see here just that we learn from Jesus the expression of personal kindness, the expression of personal kindness. Jesus was full of kindness. He was full of kindness. He had kindness for everyone. He had kindness for the crowds. You see here, he is surrounded by crowds. They are pressing in on him, pressing him back, pressing him back to the point now he's about to be pushed right into the Sea of Galilee. What does he do? His heart is for them. He wants them to hear the word of God. He wants them to know the Father. So he serves them. He he gets into the boat. He asks Peter if he can use his boat. And he gets into the boat and says, push me out. Push me out a little way. And so Jesus pushed out from the shore. Now the shoreline's filled with thousands of people. And Jesus' voice is carrying out over the water like a natural amphitheater. And the Bible says that 
he sat down in the boat and taught them. Now you need to understand, get your picture, your mental picture right here. This is a little rowboat. This is Simon Peter's boat. This is a fishing vessel. This will hold 20 to 24 men. So this is a, a good size boat. And Jesus goes up into the prow of the boat. He sits down and the people standing around the shore and on the hillside, they listen to him. That's the way t teaching took place in that day. The teacher would sit down and the audience was would stand. Those were the good old days of teaching, okay? <laughs> How would you like that? <laughs> Let me sit here for a while, you stand up, okay? Well, Jesus sits and he teaches. He has a kindness for all these people. But you, get, you know what I love about Jesus? He not only has kindness for everybody, he has kindness for each person. Where do you see that? You see his kindness for this individual, Peter, because he borrows Peter's boat. He says, I'd like to use your boat. Now, it's actually Jesus' boat because he's the Lord and the earth is the Lord and all it contains, including Peter's boat. And he borrows it. And then when he finishes his message... What does he do? He says, okay, Peter, put down your nets for a catch. Now, you've got to imagine, Peter wasn't the, probably the greatest listener during this sermon. He's tired. He's been up all night. He's been fishing all night. He's caught nothing, nothing. They have to drag these nets up. They're heavy, full of water and in the, all the threads holding them. They, they weigh more. They have to spread them out, dry them off. Now maybe they've, drawn, they've dried off a little bit. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to put the nets back in. And you can just imagine, Peter, he's almost thinking, you can imagine, I'm the fisherman, you're the carpenter. <laughs> I don't tell you how to build your tables. <laughs> don't tell me how to fish. He may be thinking that. He doesn't say it. He does gripe a little bit. Lord, we've been up all night. Caught nothing. But if you say so, put the nets down again. What happens? Peter receives the greatest catch of his lifetime. Never before. If he and his partners had anything like this catch of thousands of teeming fish being brought up out of the Sea of Galilee. Now there's a lesson here. It's not the primary lesson of this message. But there is a, a side lesson here, friends. Listen carefully. Here's a lesson about grace. Whatever we give to Jesus is never returned to us empty. Don't ever forget that. We think too much about all the sacrifices we're going to make for the Lord. All that we're going to give. Oh, how could he ask me of that? Friend, I want to tell you, whatever you give to Jesus, he will return it filled up and overflowing. And that means your life and my life. I've been by the bedside of scores and scores of saints 
just a few days, maybe a few hours from glory, and I've never heard one of them yet say, I gave too much to Jesus. I just didn't nearly get back what I thought. No, never in a million years. Jesus will be no one's debtor. Whatever you give to Jesus, he'll fill it up. And friends, whatever you give to Jesus is perfectly safe. Perfectly safe. The greatest catch of Peter's lifetime. But notice, here's where it begins to shift. This greatest catch produces in Peter the greatest impact of his life. This is the moment in Peter's life. We don't know exactly when Peter was converted, but many Bible teachers think it's right here. Right here, perhaps. It is the turning point, the great impactful point of his life because what is he about to experience? He's about to experience grace as he's never known it before, and he's going to experience Jesus' grace in his personal acceptance. He's going to experience the personal acceptance of Jesus. What does Jesus do? He gives this catch of fish. It's so overwhelming. It's so huge. But guess what Peter does? Did you notice? What does Peter do? He doesn't, he doesn't say, yes, <laughs> whoa, jackpot. That's not what he says. More than Peter is concerned about the fish in the nets, more than he's concerned about his boat that is about to sink, more than he's concerned about his sinking boat, he's concerned about the one sitting in the boat. Who, who is in my boat? It dawns on him. This is more than a miracle. This is a miracle. But Peter knows fishing. He knows what he's experienced all night long. This is just more than a wondrous sign. This is a miracle of divine power. This is a miracle of divine power. Jesus is sitting in his boat and by his will, by his thoughts, he is bringing thousands of fish into those nets. Why? Because he's the creator of all those fish. He's the Lord of glory. Only God can do this. Only the Lord can, by the power of his mind, have dominion over the fish and bring them where he wants them. And when that grips Peter's heart, he is overcome. He is overwhelmed by the fact that the Holy One of Heaven is in his boat. The Holy One is in his boat and he's in the boat with the Holy One, and he's unholy. The Holy Lord Almighty is in my boat, and I'm a sinner. And what does he do? He falls on his knees, and the Bible says he grips the knees of Jesus and says, depart from me. 
depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. It's like this. I can't stand it. I can't stand to be in your presence. But Lord, don't, don't, don't leave me. But I can't stand this. And he's not alone. Because his three associates, when they see it, they hit the bottom of the boat too. What do they say? What does Peter say? You know what Peter pronounces? When he recognizes that he, a sinner, is in the presence of holy God, you know what he does? He passes judgment on himself. He doesn't need God to pronounce judgment. He doesn't need the Son of God to pronounce judgment on him. He judges himself. I am a sinner. Woe is me. And friends, this is what happens. And you read your Bible. Every person who came face to face with God Almighty does the same thing. Woe is me, Isaiah said. I am undone. Woe is me. Elijah covered his face in his cloak. Who can stand in the presence of the sinless God of heaven? They pass judgment. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. They don't have a psychological complex. They've not been messed over by mom and dad, and that's the reason they say this. They don't say this because they've got all kinds of emotional issues. He says this because it's true. You're God. You're holy. I'm a sinner. How can I be in your presence? He owns it. He he owns it. This is who I am. And friends, this is how you know a work of grace is starting in someone's life. It's when they begin to own their sin before a holy God. They don't cover up. They don't try the fig leaf religion of Adam and Eve. They own it. They don't point point their finger at society and say, society's the reason I'm like this. They don't point the finger at ancestors and say, they're the reason I'm this way. They don't point at their wife or their husband or mom and dad. They say, it's me. I'm guilty. They own it. They're honest to God. And that's how God's grace is revealed. It's revealed honest to God. We get honest with God. I'm a sinner. Now, what happens when anyone says to God, I'm a sinner? What happens? Well, you know, the Lord says, I wondered when you figured that out. Been telling you that for years. No, you don't know the half about how bad you are. Let me tell you some more. Now, here's grace. Here's grace. The Lord lavishly expresses grace to this man clinging to his knees, saying, I'm a sinful man. And what does Peter hear 
from the lips of Jesus the sweetest thing he's ever heard in his life. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You're right. I'm holy God. But what Peter finds out, holy God is also holy good. Holy good and merciful and kind. A broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. He never turns away from anyone, no one, anyone who ever falls at his feet, no one who ever owns their sin and says, I'm guilty. The Lord always responds in grace and kindness to that person. And that's what he did to Peter. He gave him the promise of living peace. What did he say? You don't have to be afraid. I love you. You're forgiven. This is the idea. You're the very reason I came. You don't even understand yet. I'm going to go to the cross for all the things that you've done. And I'm going to overcome on the cross sin's curse. And I'm rise from the dead. I know what's coming. And it's all for you. You don't have to be afraid. I don't condemn you. And then not only did he give Peter a living peace, from that moment on, Jesus gave him a living purpose. What did he say to him? He said, Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You're going to be catching men. And I know how to catch them. And I'm going to show you how. And you're going to join me in catching men because, yes, that's what I'm about. Yes, I was a carpenter, but I came to catch men and women. Bring them to the Father. You're going to join me. And I'm going to teach you how to be catching men. Just like, by grace, you've been caught. He's going to join Jesus on his mission. Isn't this amazing? That when the Lord saves someone, he not only says, yes, I, I save you. Yeah, yes, I'll forgive you. Okay. But the Lord's so gracious, he says, I want you to partner with me. Let's work together. I want you to come and be a part of what I'm about. You're my follower, but you're going to be with me. And I'm going to teach you how to invest your life in others so that you catch them for me. Now, Peter and these disciples, they're going to be going on mission to extend. They're going to extend this grace that they've received. They're going to extend it to others. They're going to be fishing for men, but they've still got to learn something. Wow, they've got to learn something. They've got to learn the extent of Jesus' love. Not just to extend his love, they got to understand the extent of Jesus' love because it's going to go way beyond what they could have ever imagined.
And so Jesus says, follow me because I want you to learn what it means to be a fisher of men. And so you see Jesus showing he's going to teach these disciples. Remember, they're learners, they're disciples. He's the teacher. The subject is grace. Now he's going to show them the extent of grace. And he's going to show them through personal relationship. He's going to show the extent of God's grace by the personal relationship that he has with those who are even yet outside of his grace. These four men are Jesus' disciples. Now, you understand this? So far, now, there's four. There's Simon, Peter. There's Andrew. There's James and John. There's four. And they're following Jesus. They know that peace that's in their heart that he's given to them. He says, I'm going to teach you now to be fishers for, of men. And you can almost imagine their conversation. I wonder who's going to be next. I wonder who's going to be number five. Well, they're going to be completely amazed at who number five is. He was not on their top ten list, I'll guarantee you. Because who's number five? Number five is down in Capernaum. And so Jesus starts walking around the seashore, says, follow me. He starts walking to Capernaum. He gets to Capernaum. And he comes up to a man sitting at the tax booth. Now, you know what the disciples are thinking. Oh, you know. They know him. This is Levi. He's also called Matthew. This is the author of the first book of the New Testament. This is him before Christ. He is a swindler. Because tax collectors in that day, they were swindlers. They worked for the Roman government. They ripped people off. As long as they paid Rome what Rome wanted, they got to keep all the extra to themselves. They are the most despised people in the community. When Levi walked down the street, men would spit on the ground. Decent women would walk on the other side. They'd take their children off the streets. This is how he is treated. And he... Really deserves it in some ways. And now Jesus walks up to him. And now you can imagine what Peter and the others are thinking. Watch this. Oh man, this is going to be great. The Lord is going to pour down some retribution on this man. Woo, I've been waiting for somebody to tell him. Whoa, I've been waiting for somebody just to give it to him. And let him know what kind of guy he is. And their jaws drop to the ground when Jesus walks up. And rather than sharing righteous indignation, he shares a friendly invitation. Follow me. And you can just hear those four fishermen. What? <laughs> Follow me. You, the same thing to him that you said to us? Follow me. He, he invites him to a personal relationship. He knows 
Levi. He knows all about him. He knows more about Levi than these fishermen know. They can't stand Levi because guess who they've been paying taxes to for years? Levi. They bring in their catch of fish. Who's waiting on them to count the fish? Levi. Who's ripping them off every time they go out? Levi. And now Jesus is inviting Levi to join the team. It's just so radical. And guess what? Levi says, I will. We don't know what Levi knew about Jesus. Certainly no doubt knew about Jesus. This is really basically Jesus' hometown when it comes to his ministry. Not his hometown in Nazareth, but his ministry hometown. He knows a little bit about Jesus. And Jesus invites this man, follow me. And the man left everything and followed him. Then, if that's not radical enough, Jesus not only shares an invitation, but notice this. What's the next thing Jesus does? He accepts an invitation. Because Levi is so happy. He's so happy that Jesus has befriended him and Jesus has called him to be part of his team. He's so overjoyed he doesn't know what to do but throw a party. And so he throws a party and he invites all of his friends. But he only has one kind of friend. Nobody's his friend except the tax collectors. And so he invites all the tax collectors. They come over to his house. It's like a tax collector convention. And he invites Jesus and his four new friends. Yeah. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. He invites them to come to the party. Jesus is being invited to the party of tax collectors. This is, this is so far outside everybody's comfort zone, you couldn't find it on a map. This is not done. No rabbi of God would dare go into a party like that. Jesus says, sure. They go to the party, and of course... The religious crowds standing outside murmuring. I love the word murmuring here. It's, it's onomatopoeia. It's, it, it's a sound. Gagazamai, gagazamai, gagazamai. Can't you just hear him? Gagazamai, gagazamai. Why are you all eating with these sinners? Why? Why? No decent people would be seen with these people. They're not like us. They, they, they are, they're not part of our crowd. Jesus answers. He answers. But before we look at his answer, I've got a question. I'd never thought of it till this week. What would Jesus talk about at a party like this? I mean, if you're Jesus, what are you going to do? I mean, 
This is a party hardy crowd. What are you going to do? Come over in the corner, have a little drink of something, make sure it's in the can so everybody knows what it is, you know. It's just like, <laughs> say, have a little drink of something. What are, you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What does Jesus, this is the same one in the boat. Do you get this? This is the one in the boat who controls heaven and earth and the fish of the sea. He's holy, holy, holy. What is he going to talk about possibly at a party of tax collectors? You know what he does? He tells stories. Everybody loves a story. So Jesus tells stories. You say, Sam, you don't know that. Oh, no, I know it. How? Luke 15. Turn over. Luke 15. It's in the Bible. You don't have to believe me. Though my name is Samuel, okay? I'm in the Bible. <laughs> I'm not first or second Samuel. I'm third Samuel, okay? But, but this is in the Bible. What happens when you make friends with one tax collector? And he invites you a party of other tax collectors. Guess who finds out about it? This goes out fa faster than Facebook. <laughs> what? There's a rabbi who likes hanging out with people like us? Verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Why? Because he had reached out to them. He hadn't just put an ad in the paper saying, friendliest rabbi in town. He hadn't put out tracks with flames of hell on the front of it and said, God loves you. Did Jesus believe in hell? Absolutely. He talked about it more than anybody else. He talked about hell twice for every time he talked about heaven. Twice. As much as he talked about heaven, Jesus talked about hell. But when he was reaching out to people, how did he go about it? He reached out to them in friendship and kindness and he told stories. And here you have in Luke 15, three stories that Jesus told to tax collectors. And guess what the stories, they have two things in common. Three stories, two things in common. The first thing they all have in common, something is lost. Verses 3 through 7, there's a lost sheep. Verses 8 through 10, he told a story about a lost coin. A woman had lost a coin from her dowry. This is her wedding dowry. And she's lost it. And then the man <clears throat> has lost his son who's left home and gone to live in a far country. Now think about it. Jesus is talking to tax collectors. And he tells a story about sons who've gone far, far from their father. tell stories about lost things but this, all the stories have the same ending that's the other thing they have in common things that are lost lost sheep, lost coin 
lost son. Jesus is telling these stories to the the tax collectors. But they all have the same ending. What's the same ending? A party. A party is thrown. Where did Jesus, where did he meet the first tax collectors? He met them at what? A party in Levi's house. And every one of these stories about something that is lost ends up with a party. Uh, Rejoice, I found the lost sheep. And there is more joy in heaven over one son, one soul that repents. Rejoice, I found the coin that's been lost. And Jesus says, and I tell you, there's rejoicing in heaven over one soul that is found that has been lost. And then in the father's house, the man's lost his son. And when his son comes home, stinking, smelly, having ruined his testimony in his life, his health, and his family's good name, when the son comes home, the father runs to him. Puts the robe on him, the shoes on his feet, and the sign of the ring, the family ring on his finger, and says, let's rejoice and have what? A party. My son was lost and he's found. You see what Jesus is doing? He is God on earth. And this is how God feels about lost souls. He reaches out to them. He desires them. He builds a relationship with them. He identifies with them so that they might know the Father and His love and forgiveness and be a part of the family forever. This is God. This is how God goes about saving sinners. This is how He brings them to repentance. Church, listen to me. Some of you here listen very well to me. Jesus didn't bring sinners to repentance by shouting at them and telling them how wicked and awful and terrible they were. He reached out to them with love. He didn't condone their sin, never. But he was going to die for their sin and rise again. And he reached out to them in true friendship. And Jesus is being honest. He's not, listen, listen church, he's not acting like he's their friend. He is their friend. He's not telling people to go out and do friendship evangelism. And he's telling people, go make friends and tell them about me. But don't flip it on them. Don't act like you're a friend to lost people. Be a friend. And pray that you'll be able to tell them a story about a God who seeks and saves those who are lost and rejoices and throws a party over everyone. That's how Jesus reaches people who are so far away from him. Where in the world did we ever begin to believe that we're going to reach people? By making it our point to tell them how bad they are. And yelling at them. And arguing with them. Some of you, my dear brothers and sisters, you need to recognize. Not everybody shouting in a microphone is a prophet of God. 
And not everybody screaming at people and telling them how sinful they are and how unlike they are good Christian people. That's not the way Jesus went about it. It may sell a lot of books, but I'm going to tell you something. Don't send me another one. Because that's not the way Jesus does it. And that's not the way we're to do it. Go make friends. Build relationships. Be friends. I'd ask us today, myself, all of us, how are we doing with that? How are we doing? How many friends, how many friends do you have that do not know Jesus Christ? See, it's a very strange thing that when people become Christians, over a period of time, they lose all their unchristian friends. That doesn't sound like the Great Commission to me. That doesn't sound like fishing to me. It doesn't sound like fishing for men by go up to the restaurant near the lake and let's get together and listen to good music and have a talk and forget about others. That doesn't sound like the Great Commission. So friends, I'm praying that God will help us to understand this. Matter of fact, next Sunday, we have a whole day set aside for this. Morning and afternoon, whole day set aside about what? Recognizing that we are called to make friends, true friends, with people who don't yet know our Savior. They don't yet know Him. But like our Savior, we are friends praying for opportunities to introduce them to our Jesus. This morning, Jesus is here and He says, Follow me. Follow me.